If your faith in Christ is not leading you to live a lifestyle of devotion to Jesus, then you're in danger. It's a message that America needs to hear today. everybody. Welcome to Gospel Saving Church, everybody. Thank you all for being here and thank everybody on SoundCloud and YouTube also for joining us today. Thank you. You're just like in my home, just like the folks that are sitting here in our beautiful house in McKinney, Texas, Gospel Saving Church. Thank you all for joining us. Um, praise be to God. I want to start off our service with prayer and then we'll get in and we'll start teaching. So you guys want to bow your heads and Join me with a word of prayer, please. King of heaven and earth, Lord Jesus. Oh, thank you so much for all that you've done for mankind. Thank you so much for all that you've done for every, every creature, for every rock, for every stone, for everything, Lord. You, you died for all of creation, Lord God. You, you gave your life and you loved us so much, Lord. You love all of your creation, whether it's cats or dogs or horses or cows. Lord, you love all your creation. You don't, you don't love, you don't unlove anything, Lord. You, you love. You're just love. God, you are love. You are light. Lord, we thank you for that. We just thank you that we get a chance to gather in your name, in the name of Jesus Christ. Because, Lord, your word says, wherever two or more are gathered in your name, Jesus, you shall be there in, in the midst. And so, Lord, we thank you for your presence that's here right now. And we welcome your presence that's here right now, Lord God. And Lord, um, thank you even for that because, Lord, you know all, all the reasons why I'm thinking right now. I'm just so thankful that you're here. Lord, um, just thank you. Just pray you bless this message. Bless, bless the hearers. And may the hearers not be hearers only. May they be doers. Lord, as your word says, it's not the hearer that's blessed, but it's the doer. And so, Lord, may we be hearers and doers of exactly what your word says to do. Oh, Lord, I pray that you'd keep that enemy out of this place because he only comes to kill, steal, and destroy. And, Lord, I pray that you would keep his nonsense out of our minds, Lord, that we wouldn't be thinking of the things that he wants us to think, Lord, and we'd just be focused on you right now for this hour time. Lord, we pray this hour would just be so enlightening and, and we just, it would just be so en en enriching and may you'd fill us up and you'd feed us today. Lord, we love you and we praise you. 
And we thank you. In Jesus' name, we ask these things. Amen. So if you guys want to open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 12, we're going to be in verses 15 through 21. Matthew chapter 12, verses 15 through 21. The title of our message today is The Fulfillment. The Fulfillment. So I'm going to read our scripture, and then we'll teach it. Matthew chapter 12, 15. But when Jesus knew it, he withdrew from there, and great multitudes followed him, and he healed them all. Yet he warned them not to make him known, that it might be fulfilled which was spoken by Isaiah the prophet, saying, Behold, my servant whom I have chosen, my beloved in whom my soul is well pleased. I will put my spirit upon him, and he will desire, and he will declare justice to the Gentiles. He will not quarrel nor cry out, nor will anyone hear his voice in the streets. A bruised reed he will not break, a smoking flax he will not quench, till he sends forth justice to victory, and in his name Gentiles will trust. So, last week we left off verse 14. Then the Pharisees went out and plotted against him how they might destroy him. In this sense, my New King James Version Bible puts a little break there. And I have a little break that says, Behold my servant, because it's kind of starting a new section of Scripture. But the chapter doesn't break there, but the New King James Version translators, they really didn't do a good job there. Because really, verses 14 and verses 15, they really run together. If you were looking at the Bible in a scene, you know, half of 14 would really be still in the synagogue. But when Jesus knew it, he withdrew from there. So he realized that these guys were going to, they went out and they were trying to plot and they were going to try to destroy him. And Jesus, knowing what was men's, in, in men's hearts, as the Bible tells us, he knew that really what, what they were really going to do is they were really going to come back and they were really going to try to destroy him there. So half of this scene would be kind of, you know, breaking in between 15 and 16. But when he knew it, he withdrew from there. So that would be one. So then you'd see him leaving and great multitudes followed him and he healed them all. Well and good. So we know that he knew that they were going to do that. And then he leaves and he says he withdrew from there and he healed them all. Where does he go? Where does he go? We don't know. Matthew doesn't tell us where, we, where he goes. But we go to Mark 3, 7 and Mark tells us that Jesus and his disciples went to the sea, probably the Sea of Galilee. So he left from the synagogue and he moved to the Sea of Galilee where, as Matthew says here and then Mark says as well, where he healed them all. He did a whole bunch of miracles by the Sea of Galilee for all these multitudes that were following him. So, well and good. Now, why did he leave? Someone could read this text easily and think, well, he left because he was scared. Because why did him and his disciples leave? It almost looks as if he maybe left because he was, you know, scared of them. You know, they were coming back. They wanted to destroy him. Is that why he left? Is that why him and the disciples left? Well, if you think that, that's absolutely ridiculous. Jesus has never, will never, or ever will be, ever will be scared, especially of mankind. 
Jesus' amazing and power and authority and awesomeness. Just a bit of scripture right before we move on as to, you know, some of his power before his resurrection and even just some power after his resurrection. So if you guys remember, if anybody, you know, if you know the Bible very well, Jesus was arrested in the Garden of Gethsemane where he went with his disciples to pray before they were going to come and arrest him and they were going to take him. So as he was finished up praying, here comes Judas, his betrayer with the Roman soldiers. And they came and they arrested him. Well, of course, one of his most faithful followers, Peter, he thought, oh, no, this can't be happening. So he grabs his sword. He pulls out his sword and he swings it and he cuts off this high priest called Malchus's ears. High priest servants, this guy named Malchus, and he cuts off his ear. Well, Jesus stops him. And you get a full gospel account when you read Matthew, Mark, Luke and John. But, you know, some give us a little different pieces of the story of the account. But Jesus picks up the ear and he puts it back on the soldier or puts it back on the servant. And he turns to Peter and he says, Matthew 26, 52 and 53, put your sword in its place. For all who take the sword will perish by the sword. Or do you think that I cannot now pray to the, my father and he will provide me with more than 12 legions of angels? And if you're familiar with, if you're not familiar with angels, perchance, you know, we all, and I know in our American society today, we have these little placards where, you know, we have these little candles that they show us, these little angels that are nice and cute and they're little fat and always their private parts are covered up and they look so cute, like just like a little child. But in the Bible, almost every time that an angel is seen, man falls down and worships for fear because they're scary. They're not these little big, fat, little chunky, little cute angels. They're feared creatures that God made, feared. Uh, there was an account in the Old Testament where uh, one of the kings of Israel, the kings Assyria, Assyria was coming against Israel with uh, like a half a million to a million soldiers. And the king, I believe it was King Asa, came, came up, you know, and he was praying real hard. And, and uh, Isaiah comes to him, I believe it was the prophet Isaiah comes to him and he says, you know, don't be afraid. And that night, that night, as Assyria was standing against Israel with a million soldiers ready to wipe out the land of Israel, ready to wipe out the land of Judah, and just one angel of the Lord, just one, went through the whole camp of the Assyrians, of their half a million or a million people, and wiped out 185,000 men in one night. Destroyed 185,000 men in one night. Here Jesus said, Peter, don't you realize that I can call 12 legions? of angels to defend me if I wanted to. Now, a legion generally is a hundred soldiers. Now, 12 legions would be 1,200 soldiers. Now, if one wiped out 185,000 men in one night, how many could 1,200 do? That was just the power that Jesus could have commanded while he lived. Revelation 19, 11 through 16 the Bible records now, now this is after his resurrection. Now I saw heaven open and behold a white horse and he who sat on him was called faithful and true. That's our king, faithful and true. This Bible, this, this account's talking about Jesus as he's going to come back. Called faithful and true. And in righteousness, he, judge and, he judges and makes war. His eyes were like a flame of fire and, his head, and on his head were many crowns. He had a name written that no one knew except himself. And he was clothed with a robe dipped in blood because he was a man, he's a man of war now at this point. And his name is called the Word of God. And the armies in heaven, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, followed him 
on white horses. Now out of his mouth goes a sharp sword, that with it he should strike the nations, and he himself will rule them with a rod of iron. He himself treads the winepress of the fierceness and the wrath of Almighty God. And he has on his robe and on his thigh a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. That's just a little bit of the power that our mighty King Jesus commands even after he's resurrected, even when he comes back. So was he really afraid of the Pharisees that were going to come back and destroy him you know, as they were going out planning to kill him? Absolutely not. Absolutely not. That was definitely not the case. You know, but why did he leave? Because, you know, why didn't he just want to face him? Why didn't he want to stand there? And why didn't he want to, you know, as they came back, why didn't he? You know, when they came back, he could have, you know, as always before, they came and they would attack him and then he would ask them a few questions and they wouldn't be able to answer. So why didn't he stay? Maybe he didn't want to stay because an account maybe like Luke 4, 28 through 30 would have happened. Remember when Jesus walks into the synagogue and, and he's teaching on the Sabbath and he, he opens up the book of Isaiah and he starts talking about, you know, this is, this is the one to come. This is, I'm going to, you know, the Messiah is going to do this. The Messiah is going to do that. And he says, and he closes the book and he says, and today this, this, you know, has been fulfilled in your hearing. And he's really talking about himself because he was the Messiah. He was telling the Jews that, hey, I'm the Messiah. This is the things that I'm going to go do. This is the things that I'm, I came to do. And see, this is really me that I just read about in the book of Isaiah. And they didn't like that, and they said some things, and so he said some things, and before you knew it, they got really angry. And so in Matthew or in Luke 4, 28-30, we read, So all those in the synagogue, when they heard these things, were filled with wrath. And they rose up and thrust him out of the city, and they led him to the brow of the hill on which their city was built, that they might throw him down over the cliff. Then passing through them, in the midst of them, he went his way. Maybe he could have stayed, and maybe that would have happened again. Just, you know, because that could have happened again. So, but, but here we read that he left. So why didn't he just stick around and wait for these hard-hearted Pharisees to come back and, you know, with their feeble efforts to try to destroy him? I believe that there's a couple reasons. Let's start the first. If he would have stayed, what profit would that have been for the kingdom of God and for those that were really interested in seeking who God was, you know, through the things that Jesus did. And we can simply just say that it wouldn't have been. Had he stayed and he'd fought it out, you know, and he would, they would have questioned him, they would have maybe tried to attack him, he would either would have disappeared through him. What benefit would that have been for God's kingdom and what benefit would that have been for the people that were really seeking God? Absolutely not. Jesus goes from here, as we read here, and in verse 15, he withdrew from there and great multitudes followed him, and he healed them all. Jesus went out, Mark gives us a little bit more, but he actually not only healed, but he did, you know, he healed people of their demon possessions. And he actually left there and he went forward to all these multitudes that, that followed him and he did miraculous works amongst them to where they, you know, could believe in God. You know, he did things so that people would believe in God. People would believe in God's kingdom. Had he stayed and, and let these guys question him, that wouldn't have ever happened. That would have never happened. These, these miracles, these healings would have never taken place. So Christ was interested in doing one thing, in doing several things. He was interested in one, showing us his love and showing us he wanted us to believe. It's God's will is that we believe, number one, of course, that we believe that he is the one we says he is. And 
Jesus, or the Bible says, Luke 4.18, that Jesus came to set the captives free. And these Pharisees weren't interested in being set free. Okay? They had hard hearts. Remember Mark 2.17, Jesus says in this kind of context, those who are well have no need of a physician, but the Bible really says that we're all sick spiritually, that none of us are well. So, you know, but those who are sick, and I did not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. He could have stayed and he could have talked to these Pharisees again till he was blue in the face and because they just didn't think that I'm sick, he just, they just didn't think, I'm, I'm, you know, I'm good, I'm righteous. That's they were thinking, I'm righteous, I'm good. I don't, I don't really need what he has to offer. He could have talked till he was blue in the face and they still would have not believed because they didn't want to believe. He did not come for the righteous. He came for sinners, okay? Now, we as followers of Christ have to make the same judgment on when we stay and when we leave, if we're serving God or if we're talking to somebody about God as well, too. I've had several encounters since I've been a Christian, since I've been an evangelist for 14 years and for, for Jesus, where I've met certain people along the way. And just, you know, as a couple, I met this one fella who believed in this doctrine that I don't believe in. We don't see eye to eye. We, I've met him out on Walnut Hill down in the Dallas area where we evangelize every other Friday night. And he had, a, uh, he had a doctrine that, you know, I couldn't see eye to eye with him on, and he couldn't see eye to eye with him on, and we went to discussing it. Now, the reason I go out to the streets to preach Jesus Christ is to tell people that are needing Jesus about the salvation that's in him and, you know, what does it mean to live for him, and we ask all kinds of questions. And, we, you know, we reach the people that are really in need and they're, you know, that, that you know, want to talk and have conversations. But this fella... All he really wanted to do was argue with me about his doctrine. All he wanted to do with me was argue about how his way was right and, you know, my way was wrong. And so, of course, I, you know, stayed and I stayed and we had a probably a 30 to 45 minute conversation about really about nonsense because it never really went anywhere because he was never going to ever believe my point of view, even though I was making good points. And, you know, he, you know, he would just turn on my good point and just bring up another point. And so... That was one. I also met this other Hispanic fella who also believed in a different doctrine about baptism than we believe here at Gospel Saving Church. We believe that, you know, someone has to be born again to enter the kingdom of heaven. They, they believe when they read the Bible that um, if you're baptized with water, that means that you're saved. But that's not what the Bible says, clearly. It means, Jesus said in John chapter 3, you must be born again to enter the kingdom of heaven. But he, they believe there in the church Christ that you can just be baptized with water. And then that means that you're going to be saved. And so I showed him scripture and we were talking. And again, uh, uh, the same type of thing. This fellow only really wanted to argue. He only really wanted to debate his point. He wasn't really interested in, uh, you know, hearing the truth or even really wasn't even interested in my point of view. He just really wanted to argue. And I would bring up, you know, scriptures that would, you know, show him where, you know, he saw this. And he just kept going and kept going and kept going and kept going. All they wanted to do was argue with me. I, as maybe you already know, if you've been listening for us to a while, you know, for a while, Gospel Church, I used to be an atheist. So I didn't believe in God, atheist slash agnostic. So to this day, I reach, you know, God has gifted me. Of course, I know the brain of an atheist. Uh, I, God has gifted me with talking to atheists because I know kind of how they think. But still, nevertheless, I've met atheists and agnostics on the street where some conversations are great and, you know, they're receptive and they'll listen to what I have to say and I'll listen to what they have to say and I'll give them a question and let them think and some are great. But others, all they want to do is argue. Argue, 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 argue. And what happens is, is I'll give a point, I'll have a question and then they won't, 
they'll, I'll, you know, as we go along and the conversation will be progressing on, and as I give a point, a really powerful point about creationism and about God, they'll, they'll hear it and they'll be trumped. And, and that, that's it. They'll stop. They, they have nothing else to say. But instead of saying, oh, I never realized that, they just move on to the next point of dispute and just keep arguing. And so as we, as we follow God, we need to make a, you know, a determination. When do I stay? When do I leave? Do I stay here and you know, battle it out? Or do I go and move on and just pray for them? And, you know, hey, man, nice conversation, but I got to go. Or how, what do we do? But many of these times with me, the Lord was telling me, Ed, it's time to move on. Time to move on, Ed. That, that's it. You're done. That's enough. They're not listening. You know, you're out here. You're not out here for that. But unfortunately, because of my pride and because I was winning the debate, I stayed and battled it out with these folks. But of course, to my shame, and I'm, you know, I admit this now because God, you know, he chastises those he loves and he chastised me over this. Uh, to my shame, you know, God showed me that that's not why I'm there. I'm not out there to have an argument with somebody that's really not wanting to listen anyway. I'm out there to have awesome debates if I love debating. And, you know, if you want to contact the website, if you're out there listening or hearing somewhere, gospelsavingchurch.com, I'd love to answer your emails or, or answer a phone call. But uh, I love to debate. I, I, love, I just like conversation with people, and I just love questions. And I really, you know, God gives me lots of wisdom to answer questions. And that, those are good. Um, but really, in essence, if we're just going to argue that's not really a profitable conversation. Just to argue is really not a profitable conversation. Uh, these situations that Jesus had here and the situations that I've had on the streets myself have not been profitable for God's kingdom and they've really not been profitable for those really wanting to seek the truth either. So how do we know when enough is enough? I believe that the, that, the, that the minister really needs to be sensitive to the Word of God, to the Holy Spirit. But as a good, good rule of thumb, because, you know, we all don't hear God sometimes. We're sometimes hard of hearing. As a good rule of thought, we can always hear God through this book right here, the Holy Bible. We can always hear Him through this. This is the primary way in which He chooses to speak through man, or to man. Okay, Because the Holy Spirit, yes, although we love to hear Him, sometimes our minds are so clouded that we can't and we're too distracted. So if we get alone and we get into this word right here, the Bible, and we listen to God, then we'll hear Him. Even if we don't hear something in our minds, we'll hear these words. And we'll see at the end that this is really God's verifiable, account, you know, trustworthy word. So as a staple... God in his word has addressed this same issue that we had that we've discussed this morning. And it's in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verses 23 through 26. The Bible says, Paul writing to Timothy says, But avoid foolish and ignorant disputes, knowing that they generate strife. Notice, avoid foolish and ignorant disputes, knowing that they generate strife. What is strife? Strife is argument. It's, it's, it's arguments. Strife is, is, is contention. Okay? And I'm not saying contention's bad, but contention to the foolish and ignorant. What does that mean? It's not going anywhere. It's foolishness. It's not, it's not healthy. It's, it's just arguing. It's not going anywhere. It's not, it's not beneficial. And the servant of the Lord must not quarrel, but be gentle 
So if you notice, hey, I, I'm starting to argue here, time, time to go. It's, you know what, I, I'm getting too heated. I'm, I'm getting in the flesh here. Uh, you know what, this is not, this, you know, the wrath of man does not produce the righteousness of God. And so therefore, you know, if it starts to become an argument, it, it's time to go. Okay. If God, so not quarreling, being gentle at all, able to teach, patient, and humility correcting those who are in opposition. If God perhaps will grant them repentance so that they may know the truth and that they may come to their senses and escape the snare of the devil, having been taken captive by him to do his will. Notice how in, in the heart of the, you know, the person that's the person of God trying to reach the person in humility, correcting in humility, that's not pride. Humility is passiveness. It's, it's being sensitive. It's being soft. It's not being harsh. It's not being, you know, in your face and punch you in the teeth kind of thing. It's real nice and soft. It's in humility, no pride. It's not about me. Hey, what does God's word say? Hey, what does God's word say? Hey, what does God's word say? So in case that the Bible says, so that that person that you're talking to, instead of an argument, which is really going to drive them away from God, a passiveness, a lovingness, a, a correcting in humility it is going to draw them near. And if they're not willing to have that kind of conversation, if they're not willing to have that kind of debate or dispute, then that's not the kind of conversation that God wants his child to have. Now, if you can stay calm and you're presenting your case for dispute kindly and gently, like the scripture in Timothy just talked about, and your points are valid, but they won't acknowledge them, but just keep battling you, switching the subject over and over, and then obey the scriptures and, you know, move on. Because what's happening there is when they're being like that, they're really being what the Bible calls a fool. And Solomon says of a fool in Proverbs 14, 7, go from the presence of a foolish man when you do not perceive him or in him the lips of knowledge. So a fool just wants to argue. There's no knowledge there. There's no, I'm not interested in hearing your point of view. I'm just going to slam my point of view down your throat, and I don't really care what you have to say. That conversation is a useless one. That conversation is a one that you want to leave from. Just like Jesus did here. These Pharisees would have come in, and they would have done the same thing to Jesus, exactly like 2 Timothy just talked about. So Jesus and his disciples left, as we need to leave any conversation that is foolish or ignorant and not go anywhere because it's not beneficial for God's kingdom or for anybody that may be listening. We always have to be mindful about anybody that may be listening to our debate. And I've had that happen to me before too. I've been debating people on the streets and I've had onlookers that have been listening. Now, they, you know, people know that God is love, but if his minister or somebody that claims to be in his name is not being loving, then really it's easily to see People could see, oh, that's, that's, really not, that's really not a man of God. All he wants to do is argue. That's, that's not really God's character. Uh, these types of conversations are a waste of time. And we, need to, and we need to be wise with our time for the Lord. You know, we only get so much time. Time is one of the most valuable possessions that people have. And people would give up lots of money if they could just have more time. And we need to be wise with our time that we have, especially with the Lord's time. Now, if it's a rational conversation and the points you're making and he making are being both considered and we're both thinking and we're both having a rational conversation, oh, I never thought of it like that. Well, yeah, I see your point. And that's a conversation that can be profitable. That's a kind of, that's a kind of conversation that, you know, can build somebody up that actually can lead even those looking on or the person that you're talking to. That, that's the kind of conversation that could lead them in the truth. 
So just be mindful. So the second reason I believe, though, that Jesus moved on goes a little bit deeper, of course. It goes a little bit deeper. It goes into verse 16. Uh, I believe it was the title of our sermon. I believe the second reason he moved on was the fulfillment. Jesus had to fulfill prophecy that God laid down for him to fulfill. Read verse 16 in Matthew chapter 12. Yet he warned them not to make him known. So Jesus does all these miracles amongst all these people, okay? Why did he do them? Jesus does all these miracles and these healings for these multitudes that followed him by the sea, yet he warns the people not to make him known. Why in the world would Jesus do all these miracles, all these healings, and tell the people still, yeah, don't let Others know what I just did for you. Again, we have a couple reasons. One of the reasons we have to look to the ministry of Jesus to find out why he didn't want people to know. If you guys want to go to Mark chapter 1, we actually see the result of another situation where Jesus healed a leprous man. Okay? He healed this leprous man and he tells him the same thing. It was an awesome miracle, it was an awesome healing. But he tells the guy afterwards, he says in Mark Chapter 1, he says, don't go out and tell anybody, but did the guy listen? So the result of this fellow not listening is found in Mark 1, 45. However, the man, the leprous man that was leprous, but now was healed, went out and began to proclaim it freely and to spread the matter, even after Jesus told him not to. So that, look what happened. Jesus could no longer openly enter the city but was outside in deserted places, and they came to him from every direction. Well, isn't that what Jesus wanted? Didn't Jesus want all the people to come to him? Didn't Jesus want to be well-known? Didn't he want people to come and hear the ministry that he could heal more people? Yes, he did. But the problem, look at here, 145. They came to him so that he could no longer openly enter the city. Now, how is that profitable? for God's kingdom if he can't even openly enter the city. So as a result of that, the result of what this guy did, Mark 2, 1 through 2, and he again entered Capernaum after some days. So what that's really saying is he had to hide off for a while. Jesus kind of had to go away and he kind of had to be on the down low for a little while. He had to kind of go sit on the sideline because he could no longer openly enter the city. So here he enters the city again of Capernaum, but he waited many days. Well, he waited many days because the hype kind of cooled down and he probably maybe had to even stop doing some miracles. You might even look at it like that because he needed to stop. Because when you've got multitudes of people around you, how freely can you really move? You can't. Okay, look at verse 2. But even when they found out that he was here, immediately many gathered so that there was no longer room to receive them, not even near the door. So Jesus was even sneaking in and out of the cities at this point, but people, even when they found them out, they were still thronging in. Think of being in our house here today. Think if we couldn't even move, not even near the door. So that would mean there'd be so many people in the house that the door couldn't even open. Now, how, how beneficial could that be? For the minister of God. How beneficial could that be? I mean, if you don't have room, that's just an uncomfortable situation. If you're that tight and you're that, nobody's comfortable. How well are people even ready to able to listen if they're that tight and they're that squeezed in? Nobody can breathe. And how, how, how good of a situation can that be? Well, it can't be. 
It can't be. So this, he, he warned people, don't tell people who I am. Don't tell people what I did because the more that people would go and tell people who he was, the more masses that would come around him, the more multitudes that would come around him and gather around him. And there was one point where he was by the Sea of Galilee and everybody was pressing on him so much he tells his disciples, hey, go prepare a boat for me. These people are going to crush me. So what he had to do is he actually had to teach them from a boat in the sea because there was no room on land. That's how much people wanted to throng him and be around him. Everybody wanted to touch him. Even people that touched Jesus got healed. So, of course, people had ailments and everybody wanted to be around this magic healer. So, but of course, the more he was known, the more people came. And it was already a case of multitudes being around him. And if you're not familiar with that, multitude means thousands. So multitudes means thousands. So he was just one guy. Well, we've talked about this before, you know, being at Disney World or, or being at Six Flags where there's thousands and thousands and thousands of people and you're trying to walk and you're just, it's like, oh my gosh, I just can't wait till I go home, get in my car to get some elbow room because everybody's just pressing in on everybody. Well, that was Jesus' everyday life almost for three and a half years. So don't go tell the people more because there's already enough people around me. I'm already doing all that I can do. He was only one man. Kind of hard to have an effective ministry when you have all these people thronging you everywhere you go. That was one reason about that. And why did he care so much to go forth? Why did he care so much to be able to go freely town to town? Why did he care so much about being able to have room to minister to people? And we read that in verse 17. Jesus was on a mission, okay? John 6, 38. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but to do the will of him who sent me. And one of the wills of the Father, Matthew tells us, is in verse 17. So start at 16 again because it kind of runs together. Yet he warned them not to make him known that it might be fulfilled which was spoken by the prophet Isaiah, saying... so. Another reason that he didn't want others to make him known is because he had to go throughout these regions spreading God's love, spreading God's grace, so that he could fulfill the prophecies that Isaiah had spoken about 700 years before. If Jesus didn't fulfill the prophecies that were written for the Messiah to fulfill, then he would not have been the Christ. He would not have been the savior of the world. So for him to move freely and be able to do the things, the mission, the, the work that God had sent him to do, meant that he wouldn't be able to fulfill the prophecies that Isaiah and God had written about him in the Old Testament of the Bible. So he had to do these things for God, because his mission was that for God, to show people and to show us even to today, to this day, that God's word can be trusted and that, you know, because it has prophecy. We're going to look at this prophecies, prophecies in a minute, but for a moment, just for a little bit, we're going to look at some side notes, some awesome side notes about prophecy. So according to, according to the Encyclopedia of Biblical Prophecy by J. Barton Payne, there are 1,239 prophecies in the Old Testament alone. There's six to 800 in the New Testament, but there's 1,239 prophecies in the Old Testament. Of these 1239, about 300 of them are just about the Messiah alone. Just about the Christ. About 300. This prophecy that Matthew 12 gives us here, verses 18 through 21, is just one 
of the sections of prophecy that God gave us, and it comes from Isaiah 42, verses 1 through 7. In case you're wondering, Isaiah wrote his book, or somebody wrote it under Isaiah's tutelage. Either way, whether Isaiah wrote it, a lot of prophecy old didn't write their own books, but they had like a scribe that kind of went with them. Okay? So it was written between 740 and 680 B.C., toward the end of a, one of the kings of Israel called Uzziah. That puts this prophecy written about the Messiah, or about the Christ, seven, about, about 700 years before Jesus Christ was ever even born. So this could be about 750 or so years, maybe 800 years, because Jesus was in his 30s when he started his public ministry. Okay? This could have been about 750 to 800 years since Jesus, since Matthew quotes this prophecy of the Messiah here from Isaiah, anywhere from seven to 800 years. This prophecy here in verses 18 through 21, or Isaiah 42, is a, is a messianic one. It's not uh, just about, you know, what God's going to do or about it. It is a specific messianic prophecy. That means it speaks specifically about the Messiah, specifically, or my servant, as God says here. See, prophecy is important in the Bible for one main awesome reason. God in, in his word says, test me, test me, put me to the test, put my word to the test. See if my word that I speak doesn't come true. The Bible says of God's word that God's, or God says of himself in his word, I hold my word above my name. Everybody's always on, especially now, you know, you have a whole organization of Jehovah Witnesses and they're, they're on, big on the name of God, but everybody's big on the name of God. Yet the Bible says that God himself says my word is even, I hold it above my name. So that's how valuable God looks at his word. Why does God look at his word so valuably? Because in his word, we can get valuable nuggets like prophecy that can either show us fraudulence or can show us authenticity. As we're in the Bible's case, our prophecy that we see in the Bible that God gives us about things that, you know, he says something now and a thousand years or 500 years or six months from now, it's going to come to pass. And God says, test me on my word. See if what I say doesn't come to pass. Because if, if somebody comes in my name and they say something and it doesn't come to pass, that person's not of me. You don't even have to listen to that person. But if what they say is from me and it comes to pass, lo and behold, that's me speaking. So prophecy is important in the Bible because we know when God gives a prophecy and then when, if, if it comes to pass, that's really God. We can really trust that prophecy. We can really trust the minister that came and gave that prophecy. So that's why prophecy is so vital to the Bible. We find, because if the Bible doesn't have prophecy, it's, it couldn't simply be trustworthy or accurate. So let's look at these prophecies where we get the title of our message today, The Fulfillment. Let's look at these prophecies that Isaiah gave that Matthew copies down as, as, a, you know, as the Jesus is fulfilling them as he's walking along. And let's even see if Jesus does fulfill these prophecies. Because if he doesn't, then we don't have to believe in him. He's not really the Son of God. He's not really the one that we have to listen to. So let's see if he does. So let's go through verses 18 through 21. And let's break them down one by one. So verse 18 of Matthew chapter 12. Matthew writes about Jesus, the Christ, or verse 18. Behold, my servant, whom I have chosen, my beloved, in whom my soul is well pleased. 
I will put my spirit upon him and he will declare justice to the Gentiles. Did Jesus fulfill this prophecy in his ministry? First, we see the credentials of the Christ. Behold, my servant whom I have chosen. Those are pretty good credentials. Because if God says, hey, this is my servant, the one I've chosen, whoa, that's you, God? Whoa, if that's you, if that's the servant you chose, then I better take a listen to that servant because that's the one you chose. So those are geez, almost Jesus' credentials here, okay? The Messiah's credentials. Behold, my servant whom I have chosen. It's what makes him important. You see, Jesus Christ was a chosen servant of God. He was a chosen servant of God. And as this verse 18 says, he was well-pleasing to him. How can that be? I thought Christ was God. How could God have chosen the Messiah if Christ was supposed to be God? Well, it's very simple. Jesus was God in the flesh, so God chose himself to come down and live, suffer, and die for the sins of mankind. You see, only the, the only sacrifice that was acceptable to God for our sins was a perfect sacrifice. An absolute perfect sacrifice. A one and final and only one sacrifice would God accept for the sins of you and me and everybody on the face of the planet. So who in the world could have sacrificed themselves that would have been perfect? I mean, after all, Bulls and goats, they're not perfect because they're, they're, I mean, they're not sinners, but their bodies are in corruption, so they're not perfect, except for the one and only sinless God-man, Jesus Christ. Christ, being God, did not sin, was sinless, and therefore able to die in our place and make atonement for our sins. But praise God, the fulfillment here, Matthew 3.17, John baptized Jesus and God's voice comes from heaven and says, This is my Son, in whom I am well pleased. Verse 18, Behold my servant, me, whom I have chosen. I've chosen myself because I'm the only one that can pay for your sins. My beloved, in whom my soul is well pleased. I will put my spirit upon him, and he will declare justice to the Gentiles. This is my Son, in whom I am well pleased. And Jesus, as the Son said, I and the Father are one. So Jesus and God being one, God choosing himself. I will put my spirit upon him. Verse 18, Jesus baptized, John baptized Jesus in the Jordan. And the Bible says, Matthew 3, 16, when he had been baptized, Jesus came up immediately from the water and behold, the heavens were opened to him. And we saw the spirit of God descending like a dove and aligning upon him. And I will put my spirit Upon him. There's all there's fulfillment. He fulfilled it all. We're just getting started. He will declare justice or judgment, or you could say salvation to the Gentiles. But if you know your Bible very well, you could say, but wait a minute. Jesus came for the Jews only. Jesus came for the Jews first. What does this prophecy mean? And he will declare justice to the Gentiles. It's, it's very cool. God showed me this. Yes, Jesus came as first priority to the Jews, as he tells a, a, a woman of Canaan whose daughter was possessed in Matthew 15, 24. I was, sent, I, was sent, I was not sent except to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. So you say, Pastor Ed, how could this, how could this one even be a fulfillment? He didn't come. He's not going to declare justice or judgment to the Gentiles. How can that be? He said, I, I've come first. 
to the house of Israel. I come, that's, that's whom I've come for. Well, this same woman in Matthew chapter 15, even though this Gentile woman was not Jewish, Jesus healed her severely demon-possessed daughter because she powerfully showed her faith in him. Such not faith has been found in all Israel. She, she said, but, but master, please, he gave an analogy about the dogs and Gentiles being dogs, which was not, not a very honorable or, or a very uh, holy one there. But Jesus still said, you know, my Jews are my chosen people. They're my holy people. And you Gentiles are like dogs. And she said, but Lord, even the dogs would eat the crumbs that fall from the master's table, from the children's table. And he said, for your faith, go forth your daughter shall be healed. So the fulfillment was that, and that wasn't the only time that he healed and he gave justice to people that were not Jewish during his ministry. Fulfillment, fulfillment, fulfillment. Verse 19. He will not quarrel nor cry out, nor will anyone hear his voice in the streets. So there's two points here, not to quarrel. Quarrel means to engage in strife to argue, to fight. Jesus always stayed calm when he ministered to people. Even though they got angry with him, Jesus always stayed calm when he ministered to others. And we see that through the scriptures. People would get vehemently mad at him and he would just ask them a question back or make a statement back. You, you do this and you do this and you do this and you do this. We don't see him going back and forth and arguing and arguing. And what, what, where do we see the fulfillment in this one? Well, in case you missed it, I kind of alluded back to the first point. You know, I said on, on our first point when Jesus left from there, and I said, well, why did he leave? Why did he leave? And there was a couple reasons why he left. And I only gave you one point on why he left. I don't know if you, I don't know if you remember back to that. Well, there, here's the second point. The fulfillment was the whole introduction to the beginning of our sermon today was an example of Jesus fulfilling this exact prophecy here in 19, he will not quarrel nor cry out. The other reason that Jesus left and didn't stay there so that the Pharisees could come back and destroy him was because he didn't want to argue with them. He didn't want to. Matthew 19, he will not quarrel nor cry out. He didn't want to do that. People would trap him with things. But his heart was that I just want to minister to people. I want to show people who I am and I want to give people God's salvation. I do not want to get in senseless, quarreling debates that go nowhere. Jesus didn't get vehemently angry, but practice 2 Timothy 2.23, but avoid foolish and ignorant disputes, knowing that they generate strife. At all times, Jesus practiced this type of ministry when he ministered to people. Second part of verse 19. Nor will anyone hear his voice in the streets. Okay, the fulfillment of this one was the very Jesus, the very reason Jesus warned the people not to go make him known. Get it? He said, Don't go make me known. I want to kind of be, I want to kind of be silent. Let the people that are going to hear about me hear about me. But don't go out willfully. Don't go out proclaiming, here I am, because guess what? He didn't come to be a politician. He really taught in wilderness, in the wildernesses. He taught in the synagogues. And he taught in people's homes. He didn't walk through the streets of Jerusalem proclaiming who he was to everybody and anybody. Really, if you wanted to know who Jesus was, you had to go out to him. He would be in a house 
Peter's mother-in-law. He would be in a house where people would come to him. The account in Luke. So he wasn't a politician. He stayed kind of hidden. But people made him known. But he didn't go out of his way to go through the streets proclaiming who he was like a politician would. So the fulfillment of this verse is, is best seen in John chapter 7, verses 1, to, 1 through 10. After these things, Jesus walked in Galilee, for he did not walk in Judea because the Jews sought to kill him. Now the Jews' feast of the tabernacle was at hand. His brothers therefore said to him, Depart from here and go into Judea, that your disciples also may see the works that you are doing. For no one does anything in secret. See, because even his own brothers realized that he wasn't really trying to be open in his ministry. He was kind of trying to do it kind of on the side. Hey, I'm going to do this over here. People that want to know, they can kind of come to me. So anyone that does what you do doesn't, doesn't do anything in secret. While he himself seeks to be known openly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. See, notice he wasn't showing himself to the world. He was staying kind of on the side. For even his brothers did not believe him. Then Jesus said to them, My time has not yet come, but your time is always ready. The world cannot hate you, but it hates me, because I testify to it that its works are evil. You go up to the feast, and I am not going up to the feast, for my time has not yet fully come. Now when he had said these things to them, he remained in Galilee. But when his brothers had gone up, look at what I just said, how he kind of worked underneath the radar. But when his brothers had gone up, then he also went up to the feast, not openly, but as it was in secret. Now, if you know the finish of the story, it wasn't very long that he was there, that everybody knew he was there, and everybody was flocking to him, but his heart was, he will not quarrel nor cry out, nor will anyone hear his voice in the streets. That was his ministry. That was the fulfillment of, Matt, of this Isaiah verse in 14. Praise God. He just fulfills them one after another. Verse 20, a bruised reed he will not break, and smoking flax he will not quench till he sends forth justice to victory. We look at a bruised reed, and I looked at pictures of, on the internet of a bruised reed, and what I saw was a very thin, frail type of plant, bruised reed. It was kind of hanging over. It looked very, looked very wimpy, looked very kind of plain. So a weak and frail plant, Jesus will not destroy. What does this mean? The weakest and most frail of persons, Jesus will not crush. The people that Jesus was harshest with in his ministry were those that thought they were righteous and those that always came and they wanted to argue with him. And he would give them a, a harsh kind of statement like, if you were my children, you, you, know, you would know who I am. To those, that were, to those that were the woman caught in adultery, you know, that they brought to him and, and, and he was there, he said, uh, he bends down, writes in the sand, and then when he stands up, he says, okay, you have not sinned, cast the first stone. And they all left walking away. But to the woman, this poor woman, who already knew she was wrong, he says to her, she says, woman, where are your accusers? And she says, well, Lord, they're all gone. She says, well, I don't accuse you either, but you, go stop sinning. He didn't give her a, off the hook. He didn't say, oh, well, I excuse your sinful lifestyle of whoredom, but what I tell you to do is just stop sinning, but I'm not going to condemn you, my child. I'm not going to condemn you. But to those that were weak, he built them up. To those that were strong, to those that were harsh with him, he gave him a harsh statement back, always in love, though, of course, it is possible. A smoking flax he will not break. We look at this, a little wick on a candle being burnt down. If you think of a smoking flax, you can think about your candles, ladies, if you're out there. Candles has a little wick and you light it, and all you have to, if you blow that out, that would, it would smoke. 
That would be like you're smoking flax. Okay? Jesus won't stomp out. This represents, the smoking flax, is a, smoking flax is a representation of God's grace to mankind. And Jesus won't stomp out even the smallest bit of grace that has been given unto mankind until, because it will happen, the grace that he gives will end someday until, as his word says here, until he sends forth justice, or that word justice is also known as judgment, to victory. What is he saying? He won't crush the frailest person or stomp out the grace that God has given them until after God's judgment on the whole world is over and the new heavens and the new earth have come. You see, after the judgment is passed, people won't be in frail physical conditions anymore. People won't be, you know, oh, and all sickly, and people won't be that way anymore in those conditions. Mankind will either be, A, in the new dwelling place with God and Christ in the new heavens and the new earth, or B, unfortunately, in the great lake of fire, which burns with fire and brimstone, where the worm is, where the fire is never quenched and the worm never dies. But nobody's going to be having a weak, frail body with a weak, frail spiritual condition, or there won't be any more prideful. All the pride will be brought low. Nobody will be prideful anymore in hell. And certainly the people that get to spend eternity in heaven with Jesus aren't going to be prideful either because God hates pride and those that follow him are not prideful. So we're going to be in one of those two cases. In today's scripture, Jesus wanted to be able to move freely without throngs of people holding him back so he could go give out God's grace to all the peoples of Israel, plus any of the Gentiles that would come his way. And you say, well, Pastor Ed, I don't really see the fulfillment of this one. Did Jesus fulfill those things? Well, you see, there are prophecies in the Bible that have not been fulfilled yet, but they're being fulfilled as we live day after day after day. And you say, so you could say, well, where is the fulfillment of this one, Pastor Ed? Look at this one. The fulfillment of this verse is that God's grace is still here for mankind even to this very day, over or almost 2,000 years after Jesus came, lived, died, and rose again. God is still offering His grace to all mankind. And the judgment has not come just yet. God is still offering His grace and His salvation to anybody that'll take it. To anybody that'll receive the grace, the salvation is still out there available for any that want it. So this one is still being fulfilled in the fact that it's not been, the judgment has not come yet, but the fact that God's grace is still being offered is, the, is an ongoing fulfillment of what Isaiah and Matthew both write here in verse 20, Hebrews read, till he sends forth justice to victory. So verse 21, And in his name Gentiles will trust. So Jesus had an encounter with the Samaritan woman. He goes to, through Samaria and he's with his disciples. And as they're together, he's hungry. So his disciples leave to go get him some food. While he's there, he's sitting by this well. A Samaritan woman comes up on him. And they have this real neat conversation. You know, he tells her this and she says this. And, well, you know, the Jews say this. And, you know, well, that says this and that. And the other thing. Well, anyway, they have this big, long conversation. She starts to see some stuff and she starts to realize, oh, my gosh, this is not just, just anybody. This is, I think this is the Christ. So she goes out and she starts proclaiming 
This, the Christ is here. Jesus, this one, I think he's the Christ. He's here. Come, everybody, you got to see. He's here. Oh, gosh, he's here. And the result of that was John 4, 3 through 42, if we start in 39, many of the Samaritans in that city believed in him because of the word of the woman who had testified. He told me all that I ever did. So when the Samaritans had come to him, the Samaritans would have been Gentiles. When the Samaritans come to him, they urged him to stay with them. And he stayed there two whole days. So he stayed two whole days in the land of a Gentile, in the Gentile land. Yes, he did. He stayed there two whole days. And many who believed because of his own, and many more believed because of his own word. So yes, although Jesus came to the Jews first, his salvation was still there even for the Gentiles. And many believed because of his own word. Then they said to the woman, now we believe not because of what you said, for we ourselves have heard him, and we know that this is indeed the Christ, the Savior of the world. So not only did he come for Jews, but also in fulfillment of Isaiah and Matthew 12, 21, and in his name, Gentiles will trust. And we saw in his ministry that even Gentiles believed and trusted in his name while he was here. In closing, what does Jesus' fulfillment of all these prophecies mean for us today? That is really the question that we have to ask ourselves today. What does Jesus fulfilling all these prophecies have to mean for us today? Here's what it can mean for you if you have eyes to see, if you're open. It means confidence. It means faith. And you say, why? How does him fulfilling these prophecies mean confidence and mean faith for us? We well, see nobody can see the future. Only God can see the future. Man cannot tell. I'd ask anybody out there and challenge anybody watching or listening or right here. Can you know, do you know what's going to happen to you tomorrow? And the answer would be absolutely not. You may think, well, tomorrow, you know, it's Monday. I'm going to go to work. Really? What if you die tonight? You're not going to work tomorrow. What if on the way to work, you get into a car accident and you have to go to the hospital and you never make it to work? You don't know what tomorrow will bring. But there is one that knows tomorrow and the next day and the next day and the next day and for the next forever. And his name is God Almighty, Jehovah or Jesus Christ, as he's more commonly known in the New Testament. So the fact that God hit the nail on the head for Jesus fulfilling all these prophecies that he did means that we can read or listen to the Bible and confidently know that it is authentic or real. It is the real or authentic word of God. And not some fraudulent or fictitious fairy tale made up in somebody's imagination. Because since the Bible has prophecy, and only one knows the future, and that's God Almighty, and the Bible's full of things that happen, and that happen hundreds and thousands of years later, we know that it's God that really said it. And if we can trust that the Christian Bible is the authentic Word of God, then we can also trust that the words written in it are really from our Creator. Now where we see where our confidence and our faith is really adding up here. So what's, and if really from our Creator, then we can read or listen to them and know that He is speaking to us personally and passionately. 
So what is God's message for us? Now that we can trust the Bible, and I would love to have conversations, oh, well, we still can't trust the Bible because I've been looking for 14 years and God's word is amazing. And the prophecy and archaeology and the history of it are indisputable, powerful facts of truth for God. So what is God's message to us? What is God's core message to all humanity? from this verifiably accurate, provable, and amazing Christian Bible. Well, get this. From cover to cover, from in, which is the very first word in Genesis, to amen, which is the very last word in Genesis, God's core message is this. I love you with an everlasting love, and care about you with an everlasting compassion. And I desire you, mankind, to respond to my love and compassion for you and turn away from your self-centered ways of lifestyle and turn to me and love me back. That's God's core message to all humanity from in to amen. So how do we do this? How does someone show God that they love him back? Well, remember Matthew 3.17. And suddenly a voice came from heaven saying, This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. Matthew 12.16. Behold my servant whom I have chosen, my beloved, and whom my soul is well pleased. So we know the first clue to showing God that we love him back is Jesus Christ. So what about Jesus Christ? What about him do we do that we can show God that we love him? Matthew 17, 5. Jesus was on the Mount of Transfiguration, what the Bible calls it, with his disciples, Peter, James, and John. And while he was there, he was transfigured like the sun, white in brightness and shone like the sun. And he talked with Moses and Elijah, the prophets. And while he was there, Peter stands up and says some things about a place to live. And while Peter was speaking, while he was still speaking, behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them all. And, a, and suddenly a voice came out of the cloud saying, This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. Hear him. Hear him. We know, number one, that the reason, that the, one of the ways we love God is through Jesus Christ. And how do we love God back? We hear Jesus Christ. Amen. How do we go about loving God back? Making a decision to put all of our faith, hope, and trust in Jesus Christ and deciding to start obeying His teachings and surrendering to Him and making Him the Lord of our lives. Instead of you being in control of your life, you stop, get out of the driver's seat, walk around, get in the back seat, and you allow Jesus Christ to be the one that rules and runs your life. Now to ask you today, have you made this decision to love God back yet? Have you made that decision to do it? And I'd ask you, if not, what in the world are you waiting for? Again, he loves you with an everlasting love and cares about you with an everlasting compassion. 
He loves you so much that in His great book, the Bible, in His great big love letter, in this Bible right here, that He loves you so much, it's like a great big love letter. He writes to you, Romans 5, 6-8. For when we were still without strength in due time, Christ died for the ungodly. If you're in the land of the living and you're a human being, you're ungodly. We're all ungodly. Christ died for the ungodly. For scarcely or hardly for a righteous man would one die. Yet perhaps for a good man would someone even dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love toward us in that. While we were still sinners, while we're still in our sin, Christ died for us. Or you could say Christ died for you and me and everybody on the face of the planet. His big, his big great love letter tells you that even though you're still a sinner, he came and he took the penalty for your sins upon himself and he died for your sins on the cross to take your penalty so that you don't have to. What great a love is that? And right now, if you don't know him, the Bible says that you've made yourself his enemy. Not by his wanting, not by his desire, but you've made yourself his enemy if you don't accept his plan of salvation, if you're not, if you haven't given him the reins of your life. He just, he, Jesus did this because we all have a sin problem. We're all sinners, the Bible says, and fallen short of the glory of God. Every one of us has sinned. Every one of us has fallen short of the glory of God. And yet Christ came anyway, and he died, and he took your judgment upon himself so that you didn't have to. If you don't let Jesus have control of your life and you don't completely put your trust in him today for every detail of your life, would you please stop wasting time and accept this gift that God is offering you because that's how much he loves you. He wants you. He's still got his grace. His hand is still outstretched to you right now. Please, my son, please, my daughter, just come to me. Just come to me. My salvation is still there. Please turn to me. And of course, we know biblically that the word love is a verb. And we just don't say we love God with our mouths. The Bible says you show God you love him by your actions. The Bible says faith without works is dead. So please, today, if you're not there, turn now before it's too late. Before you reject him to the grave. And then by your own desire, you go and you send yourself to hell because you just didn't want to be with God. And you burn there forever because you wanted to, not because he wanted you to. Please turn now. Please turn now. And don't waste any more time. For God loves you and he gave up everything just to have you. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for this awesome day. Thank you for, Lord, your word. Thank you, Lord, that we can trust in your word. Thank you, Lord God, that your word is so true. And we know it's true by all kinds of different proofs that are in it. Lord, it's not a fictitious fairy book. It's not, a, it's not some fairy tale that somebody made up in their, in their head one day when they were just writing, Lord, but it's things written hundreds and thousands of years before it happened. And, and we know it's true because of those things. 
Lord, I just pray, Lord God, that anybody that's listened to this message, Lord God, if they haven't taken you up on your offer, Lord, if they haven't surrendered to Jesus Christ, now is the day, Lord God. Now is the time, Lord God, for them to fall on their face and turn to you with all their hearts and put their trust in you and start making a decision. The cross before me and the world behind me, I'm just not going to live that way anymore. I need Jesus. And Lord, I pray that they would come. Come, come now, please. I pray that they will come now. I pray that you would bless them, Lord, and grant them repentance, Lord God, because that is your desire for none to perish and all to come to repentance. And I pray that you would scoop them up in your arms of love as they fall down on their knees and cry out to you, and you'd scoop them up and give them a big hug. God, we love you and we praise you. And I just ask these things in Jesus' mighty name. Amen. We would like to thank everyone who has joined us today to listen to Pastor Ed Spagnoli bring us more biblical truth as he preaches verse by verse through the Bible. It is our prayer that you are encouraged and challenged to respond to the word of the Lord today as one life will soon be passed and only what's done for Jesus Christ will last. If you would like to support this ministry or contact us for prayer or for any reason at all, please visit gospelsavingchurch.com and enjoy our beautiful new website and click on the appropriate links. God bless you.